0: Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals, the show that teaches you and other busy pros how to grow your wealth so you can live life on your own terms. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. Our guest today is Brian Chow. Brian is an associate attorney at Barth Calderon LLP. He specializes in asset protection, estate planning, and business succession planning. He works with clients ranging from young professional couples just starting to think about estate planning to wealthy, successful real estate investors needing to protect their assets. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Taylor. So most of our investors out there are syndication investors and turnkey rental investors out of state. What are some top key first steps we can take to protect our assets, especially if we're not investing in a self-directed IRA, we're just investing out of a a cash account? How can we segregate our assets to protect them?
1: Sure. I mean, I think um, a big part of understanding asset protection, I think the first thing is really just acknowledging that the need exists, right? So being that we live in Uh, The United States, which is one of the most litigious, is the most litigious society in the history of mankind, at least (laughs) as far as we know it, uh, and understanding that we are engaged in unusually risky activity, which is the activity of owning a business or operating rental property, it's hugely important to take proactive steps to uh, create firewalls between our assets and our liabilities, just because um, it's not really a matter of... If, but really, more a matter of when, especially as you move up into um, higher net worth levels, right? You can think of you can think of wealth almost like um, kind of basic physics, right? The more mass you accumulate, the more gravity you have to attract liability to you, and that liability really takes a whole host of forms, um, and that those potential creditors that are out there are not really that uh, concerned about who is right or who is wrong in any given transaction. It's really more who can pay and how do we get them to pay, right? So um, even in situations where uh, a client may not necessarily have done anything wrong, in many cases because they can afford to pay, uh, creditors will try to shake them down for money. And sometimes judges and juries are sympathetic to that um, if there really isn't as a way to um, you know compensate someone who is hurt. Um, fault isn't always necessarily the primary driver. So, um, so understanding that, I think that's really the starting point, right? So, uh, when I'm meeting with clients and talking about uh, asset protection, specifically when we're talking about real estate, uh, is really understanding the way that liability flows, right? So, most the most common way that people take title to real estate is usually in their individual capacity, right? So, I buy a rental property. Um, And it's just in my name or it's held, uh, you know, husband and wife um, as community property or as joint tenants. And when we hold title in our individual name, that essentially says that there's no separation between the property uh, and myself as a person. So if, for example, a creditor slips and falls on that property and they're, let's say, seriously injured that liability can now spill across, right, from that property to me as an individual, and then from me as an individual to all the other assets that I might own, my house, my bank accounts, my investment accounts, my other rental properties, my business, uh, et cetera. And so that's really the starting point is just understanding that uh, clients, if left to their own devices, usually have everything kind of open-ended where liabilities can freely, flow across the balance sheet uh, without any sort of restriction uh, or direction. Make sense?
0: Yes, that sounds very
1: risky, the way you put it. (laughs) Yeah, so just acknowledging that is kind of the first step, right? Getting the client to, and and most real estate investors, I think, are attuned to that risk, but really just acknowledging that formally is kind of the first step and saying, okay, this is something that we really want to address. A very simple thing that clients can do from an asset protection standpoint, um, and probably One of the first things that we'll do is uh, considering utilizing entities as a way to uh, create firewalls between our assets and our liabilities. Um, So uh, a common way of doing this and a common entity that we use is something called a limited liability company or otherwise known as an LLC. And what essentially we're doing in utilizing an LLC is we're essentially essentially creating a business that has its own assets and liabilities right so what we are what most people do when they utilize these entities is they want to say hey instead of me brian the individual owning assets or a business directly i would prefer instead to create a separate company that owns and manages these assets right just think of it like a separate business and so that entity has its own assets and that entity has its own liabilities. So whether I'm operating a coffee shop, whether I'm operating a, uh, a entity that um, has buy and hold real estate, whether I'm doing fix and flips, right? I wanna say, okay, this business operates on its own. And again, it, it is separate from me. And the idea then being that as liabilities occur in that business or as liabilities occur in that entity, that that liability can only attach to the assets of that business. So for example, if I create an LLC and it holds a fourplex and I'm renting that out to, to a number of tenants and we have that same situation where a tenant uh, gets injured on the property and decides that they're out for blood, well, assuming that I've set the LLC up correctly, I've maintained it correctly and I treat it right, I give it the respect of being its own entity and don't treat it like my own uh, piggy bank or as essentially as myself, then what happens is the state will say, okay, we recognize that this is a separate entity and we will actually protect or limit the liability associated with that business to the assets of that business. So it's a really powerful way to prevent that liability from popping out of the box, out of the LLC and attaching to my house, my bank accounts, rental properties, etc. Instead, the only thing that they can go after are the assets of the LLC. So for example, the equity in that fourplex, maybe there's a bank account that I used to collect rents and there's probably not much else there for them to go after. Make sense?
0: Yes. Interesting. And you said something, you said set it up correctly and then maintain it correctly. Can you clarify a bit what you mean by maintain it? Correctly maintaining the LLC. Sure, sure. So, so this is a co- a common misperception about LLCs
1: and about business entities generally, is that uh, there are not a lot of requirements uh, to set one up and maintain it. Um, I'm sure many of your clients have, you know, they've seen the commercials on LegalZoom or maybe they've filed um, and set up LLCs on their own and. Some of the pushback that I see when I'm meeting with clients is, um, you know, if instead of paying a couple grand for an attorney to do it, they'll say, well, yeah, I can go on LegalZoom and do it for, you know, 500 bucks or perhaps even less. So, and the rationale there is they say, okay, well, you know, anybody can just fill out the paperwork and file it with the Secretary of State. And I don't, and I agree in that, in that regard. What clients are typically uh, paying us for is to make sure that all the other things that come along with properly setting up and maintaining that LLC are done, right? So there are a number of variables that come into that. So the first thing is really design. So if you're thinking about, you can think about creating an entity almost like, or creating a series of entities if you have multiple properties or multiple assets, Um, kind of think of it like uh, building a house, right? You can start just slapping bricks down and slapping foundation down, but it helps to have a plan, right, it helps to have an architect figure out, okay, how, what is this thing going to look like? How are we going to accomplish the, the various goals that we may have uh, for this asset protection structure uh, for, or for this business structure? So really just understanding the first step is really understanding, right, what kind of entities would we be using? Would we be using an LLC? Would, be, would we be using a corporation? Would we be using a limited partnership? right? What are the pros and cons of that? Would that LLC be venued in the state where the asset is located, right? So if we, let's just say here in California, if I have a California property, should it be a California LLC? Would it be better if it was a Delaware LLC? Would it be better if it was a Wyoming LLC? It depends, right? So understanding those things uh, is important. Should that LLC be held in a trust? Should it be a revocable trust? Should it be an irrevocable trust? If so, what kind, right? All of those things kind of depend on the client's goals. Now, once we kind of understand what the structure is supposed to look like, then we wanna make sure that the the structure is properly executed upon, right? The plan is executed upon. So um, filing the paperwork, like I said, is typically the easiest part of setting up the LLC. But deciding, again, who the managers of that llc are going to be whether there's going to be who the agent for service of process is going to be right those things are also important in the design process but then also figuring out okay now that we've decided we know how to set all this stuff up then we want to make sure that you know the operating agreements are properly drafted that the different partners uh their specific rights are properly defined we want to make sure that Um, there's thought put together in how the internal operation of that LLC works to make sure that it runs smoothly and also in the event that there is a lawsuit, we wanna make sure that the operating agreement works within our goals to limit that liability. We also wanna make sure that the assets are properly funded, right? So if the property is designed to be held in this LLC, we wanna make sure that we file the various deeds or the various paperwork to make sure that the title actually reflects that the LLC is holding whatever it's supposed to be holding, right? Whether it be four single family residences in West Texas or whether it be one hotel in uh, in uh, in Times Square, right? We wanna make sure that those things are properly um, structured and the paperwork reflects where those assets are supposed to be. Furthermore, we wanna make sure that those entities are properly maintained, right? And I mean that in two ways. So maintenance means providing whatever Compliance is required by the states in which the LLC is registered to do business. Right, so for example, we'll just use California as an example. Right, so California requires um, that each LLC pay uh, to the franchise tax board or the essentially the state version of the IRS a minimum tax of eight hundred dollars a year, and then beyond that, there are some additional um, uh, compliance requirements uh, that are that that state imposes. Right? If the LLC is also registered to do business in other states, let's say Delaware or Nevada or Wyoming or Florida, right? each of those states will also impose ongoing requirements, um, and we have to play by those states' rules in order to continue to do business. So you can think of it almost like state-sponsored insurance. In order for, let's say, the state of California to agree to provide these protections that I want, I have to play by the rules that California has set forth so um, or whatever other state it is that uh, the, the LLC is doing business in right so um, so to be a good actor uh, means um, following those rules from a compliance standpoint but then also respecting the entity as a separate uh, business so for instance uh, we've all heard of you know companies or business owners that treat their business like their own piggy bank, right? They just dip in and they use it to pay for personal expenses and they treat it. Essentially, there's no difference between the business and themselves, right? They just kind of use it uh, as they will and they don't respect or they don't operate with that business at arm's length. And so that's another important aspect of the ongoing management of the LLC is making sure that you're treating it like a separate business. So that means, right, you're not just... Loaning money to yourself for 0% interest, right? You wanna pay a reasonable interest. You're making sure the business is adequately capitalized. You're making sure not to be abusive when taking uh, business deductions, right? You're not commingling business and personal deductions uh, on your tax returns. You're also not commingling funds, right? Your personal funds should be personal. business fund should be business when you're acting in behalf of the business you want to make sure that whatever paperwork you have reflects that you're acting as the manager of your llc or the president of the corporation as opposed to you know brad the guy sitting on the couch right so um so making sure that we're respecting those uh the differences between a separate entity and ourselves as individuals uh, that's another important aspect to w- maintaining what's called the corporate veil. So, so many of your clients may have heard that term, right? Piercing the corporate veil. If we do not, right? Each time we do something inappropriate, you can think of it like a grain of sand that you're putting on a scale. Each time that we do something appropriate, right? Maintaining our corporate minutes, right? Doing the shareholders meetings, et cetera. We're putting a, a, a grain of sand on the other end of the scale, which is in our favor, right? Right? if for some reason there's some liability within that um, within that entity, that LLC or that corporation, right? One of the first things the creditor is going to try to figure out is can we pierce the corporate veil? Can we bust through the packaging to come after, right, all of Brian's personal assets or all of Taylor's personal assets, right? And so the more grains of sand you have stacked up in your favor and the less grains of sand you have stacked up in, in favor of the creditor, right, the more leverage you have to be able to negotiate a settlement for less time, less money, less headache, and the less likely it is that they'll be able to pop through the corporate bail.
0: So in the single-family investing world, there are a number of folks – this is just an example that comes to mind – number of folks who will say buy a property, get a mortgage in their own name, and then – transfer the deed on the property over to an LLC that they create, but the mortgage is still in their own name, despite there being a due on sale clause in the mortgage and they just get around it. Is that an area that could come up in terms of maintaining the LLC? They could go on the look at the note and see, you know, Taylor's name on the note. Well, it's not Taylor LLC on the note, it's Taylor's name on the note. So is that a cause for piercing the corporate veil?
1: Uh, Not likely. So the the, the note itself is right a debt against the equity in the company or uh, a, de- a debt against the equity in the, in the property itself. And so I don't think it would be a compelling reason for a court to determine that that property was not a property of the LLC. So um, it's indicative of the fact that the lender agreed to lend money to the individual who is getting the loan but it is not indicative of the fact that um, the integrity of the LLC has been compromised. But that does bring up another question, right? And and this is another question that comes up uh, rather frequently when dealing with real estate investors, which is, uh, if I transfer a property that has a loan on it into an LLC, um, is there a risk that a bank could trigger a due on sale clause? Um, and the answer to that question is, it is a risk, but it's a highly unlikely risk. Um, and, and just out of curiosity, Taylor, is that something that you've come across or that uh, your listeners have brought up from time to time?
0: Yeah, it's something that folks bring up. I mean, it's a concern that's there, but the the consensus generally is that, yeah, they could do it, but they never do do it in in <laughs> reality.
1: Yeah, yeah. So so let me give you my perspective on this. And uh, I think that that kind of fits along with kind of your interpretation as well, which is, right, the, the idea behind the due on sale clause is in large part to give the bank recourse if you transfer property to somebody that they didn't agree to loan money to, right? So let's say um, I go and I get a loan from B of A, And, or let's just say bank X and bank X says, okay, we ran your credit. We looked at all of the due diligence that you provided and we deem you credit worthy and we hereby agree to give you this loan on this property. Well then I turn around and I give it to my second cousin, who's a total deadbeat. Right now that person has terrible credit. And the bank has no faith in this person's ability to continue to service the loan. So the bank to protect themselves says, okay, we want the right to call this loan due if we discover that the person responsible for paying this loan is not somebody, somebody that we agreed to lend to, right? So, or substantially the same person. And so let's say instead of giving that property to my deadbeat second cousin, I instead take that property and I put it into an LLC wholly owned by myself, right? So what happens at that point is ultimately, right, although title has technically changed, uh, I am still the person ultimately responsible for paying off that loan, right? If I stop paying, if I stop making those payments, right, I'm the one who's going to be hurt because I'm the one, ulti- I'm the ultimate owner of that property. and So in that regard, from a, uh, from a purely kind of macro level, right, the bank is highly unlikely to call a loan due uh, so long as they can assure themselves that the property is still substantially owned, ultimately by you, even though technically the title has changed. Now, other times, uh, another scenario that clients have brought up is, well, what about now where we ha- we're we in a rising interest rate environment? What if, what if a greedy banker or a greedy bank decides, hey, let's shake down our client because interest rates are rising, uh, we see that they've transferred into, into an LLC wholly owned by themselves. But you know, here's a good excuse for us to utilize that due on sale clause to force them to refinance so we can raise the interest rate. Um, this is something that I think is highly unlikely to happen as well because you know, banking uh, for the most part is a relationship business, right? So they want you to keep your money, right? Keep your loans with them and keep paying them interest. If they're gonna do a shakedown like this, one, it probably opens them up to um, litigation for acting in bad faith. Uh, Two, uh, if you just think about all the bad press that certain banks have gotten uh, recently and throughout history, right? it's a terrible PR move and it will also probably lose them tons of clients because those clients will probably take that money and refinance elsewhere. So as a very practical matter, it's highly, highly, highly unlikely Um, that a bank would utilize the due-on-sale clause for a transfer into an LLC, especially any sort of bank that's used to dealing with real estate investors because of the prevalence of these types of entities, right? So unless they have some indication that you're abusing that or you're you're using the entity uh, improperly, um, it's really unlikely to happen. In 40-some-odd years of our firm being in existence, there's only been a a whiff of the bank even considering uh, calling a loan due um but it's never actually happened usually uh, once we explain what's been done um the bank will just once their questions are answered they'll just go away or they'll say hey you know pay us you know a small fine and we'll we'll call it a day so the risk um to transferring property into an llc the risk of the loan being called due is very very low but for those clients who really are concerned and believe me there are some that are um for those clients, uh, there are ways that you can work around that. And you can utilize a land trust, for example, to assign a beneficial interest in a property into an LLC without the bank being notified that the pro- the interest in that property is held in the LLC. So there are some ways to kind of work around that for those clients who really are concerned. But uh, in my professional opinion, the likelihood of a due on sale clause being triggered as a result of a transfer into an LLC substantially owned by the original owner Uh, is
0: extremely low. Good to know. Now, let's take a quick break for our sponsor. Want daily interviews with real estate investors and none of the fluff? Go to bestevershow.com
1: where Joe Fairless interviews daily real estate investors and entrepreneurs about
0: their best advice ever. Go to bestevershow.com. So, Brian, what is the best investment you ever made?
1: Well, so this is a, uh, that's a great question, Taylor. So, Um, I, will start by saying that the best investment that I ever made, uh, was probably in my education. And I mean that both formally and informally. So having gone to, uh, well, my parents paid for, for, for undergrad, but having, having paid for law school and business school, um, those were really, really, um, that was money very well spent to give me the knowledge to kind of get to where I am today, um, and then also informally, um, the money that I've spent in getting involved with different professional networking organizations, um, which also include real estate investment clubs, etc., have really kind of shaped um, the way I view uh, investing and in the way that I approach life. Um, I think um, the way that I kind of view everything is through the realm of relationships or through the lens of relationships. So my entire existence is really centered around the acquisition and the maintenance and growth of great relationships. Um, and that and I assume, Taylor, that your your question about the best investment that I've ever made really kind of centers around real estate. So let me let me let me bring it all back full circle here. So so I look through everything through the lens of relationships. What's been awesome, you know, as it pertains to to real estate, is that real estate is a people business, right? So um, whether it be finding the right deals, right? There's a lot of kind of boots on the ground understanding of um, what's the appropriate property to buy, what's the timing in the market, um, analyzing cash flow projections, um, making sure you have good contacts to either manage the property or to acquire the property or to maintain the property, right? So all of those things... Uh, I really love about real estate investing. I would say that the best investment that I've made so far, and just to give the audience a little bit of a background, so um, my wife and I dabble in real estate investing, right? We, we primarily buy single family properties local to where we are that we can manage. And uh, probably the best property that we've bought to this point has been a, a small condo near a university. Um, and we've been lucky to have really, really great tenants, and we bought it in 2012, and it's almost doubled in value. So all, almost all of our properties we bought at the very bottom, which has been great. So, so far all of our investments have panned out really well. Now it's a little trickier with, uh, with housing prices being what they are and uh, with the interest rates rising. So it's, uh, it's a little more challenging. So we're actually looking to buy our first multifamily property right now, again, uh, in Southern California, and again, waiting for the right deal is, uh, again, is a little challenging, right? It's not as, it's not as the margin for error is not as, uh, isn't, uh, not as broad, but what's been, again, really gratifying is, you know, through the relationships that I've built um, in getting involved with different real estate investment clubs um, and with other financial professionals, I feel like I have a really great team of people to help advise me, um and to kind of give me a big picture understanding of what will work and what won't and 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 so in deciding whether or not to deploy funds i think a big part of it is right running all the cash flow projections making sure that we can cash flow from day 1 not right not uh exposing ourselves with, by taking on too much debt so that if there is a downturn or if we have tenants that are you know non-performing that we're risking uh having to uh risking foreclosure or having to sell the property
0: so Awesome. All great answers. What is the worst investment you ever made? <laughs> Hopefully it's not my next pro- property purchase. Yeah. Um,
1: worst investment ever. You know, I, so this is a, this might be a little bit of a political answer, but I don't know if there is a worst because I don't know. A quote that I heard was attributed. I heard it was attributed to Morgan Freeman, but I'm not sure if he actually said this. But um, he said, hey, either I'm successful or I learn, but so long as I do it, right, it's not really bad, right? So, the idea being, um, you know, even if I make a bad investment, so long as I take the time to learn from it, uh, it's, probably, uh, it's probably time uh, and money well spent. Um, You know, I took a, you know, if we're we're going to talk literally, you know, I took a, like a day trading uh, stock investment course several years ago, and, you know, I spent, you know, a grand on it for a weekend, and it was instructive, but I never actually applied anything to it, so perhaps that might have been my worst investment, but that's really a function of my my mindset in not applying the lessons I learned, but... I think one of the things I did take away from that is um, I don't have the time, or the, or, or currently I don't have the time or the inclination to actively manage a stock portfolio. Which again is why I have a financial advisor. So I guess there is some value to that.
0: Awesome. Well, I don't. I wouldn't call that a political answer. I, I think it's a perfectly <laughs> valid answer. So.
1: so uh, All right. Well, thanks for the validation. Yeah, we accept
0: that here. How about what is the most important lesson you learned in investing?
1: You know, I'm going to bring it back to the whole idea about relationships, which is everything that I look at is a function of how it relates to the people involved. And what is awesome about investing and what is awesome about success um, is you, sur- if you surround yourself with great people, you become those people. <laughs> and so... Uh, in, in, in in my investment philosophy, I'm obviously looking at return on investment, but I think to define return on investment solely in the framework of or through the lens of monetary compensation is a little bit short-sighted. So the way that I will look at how I invest my time and money uh, encapsulates a whole lot of things. And, and a lot of it is social equity, right? So if I'm building trust, if I'm uh, if if I'm creating a situation where somebody else is benefiting, even though I may not be, um, you know, making the most amount of money given the opportunity cost, um, if I account for those things, um, it leads me to a place where I'm satisfied and I feel like I'm doing good uh, in the world while also benefiting myself.
0: Awesome, Brian. What is the best place for our listeners to get in touch with you?
1: Sure. So uh, for those of you who are uh, interested in you know, connecting with me, um, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. My name is Brian Chow, C-H-O-U. If you look me up on LinkedIn, I'm, uh, you'll see a picture of a handsome Asian guy in a suit. And uh, that's one way to connect with me. Um, you can also find me online at Uh, www.barthattorneys.com if you want to learn a little bit more about my firm uh, and my professional bio is also listed on there as well and my email is brian, B-R-I-A-N at barthattorneys.com and uh, if you for those of you in the audience who are interested in utilizing me as a resource I'm happy to be to, um, to connect with you learn a little bit about your situation and do what I can to point you in the right direction.
0: Awesome. And all the links you mentioned will be in the show notes for anyone that's looking for a uh, quick link to any of those. Really appreciate your time today. And I'm sure the listeners got something out of it.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Taylor. And if there are uh, any other opportunities that I can do to contribute to the success of your podcast or otherwise, uh, definitely let me know as uh, collaboration is one of the things that I find most enjoyable about uh, what I do.
0: Great. I appreciate that. To all the listeners out there, thank you for tuning in. I hope you got a lot of value out of the interview today. Please subscribe to Passive Wealth Strategies wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It'd be a big, big help. And we'll catch you on the next one.